0: Welcome to season six of the Engineering Education Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ruth Streveler, Professor of Engineering Education at Purdue University. This is my final season as host of this podcast. In May 2023, I will retire from Purdue University and begin a new phase of my life and career. Visit my LinkedIn page to find updates about me and about research briefs. This is a rebroadcast of an episode with Dr. Nadia Kellum, first released in February 2019. Nadia has always been a beacon of innovation and bravery. It takes courage to push the boundaries as Nadia does. I think in our turbulent times, it's useful to listen again to Nadia's story. A person like Nadia does not stand still, and you'll find an update on her new adventures at the end of this episode.
1: My guest today on Research Briefs is Dr. Nadia Kellum, Associate Professor in the Polytechnic School of the Ira A. Fulton Schools of Engineering at Arizona State University. Prior to joining the Polytechnic School, she was an Associate Professor at the University of Georgia. I have had the pleasure of knowing Nadia for about 10 years, and I always know she's pushing the boundaries, and I can count on her to have work that is intriguing, that energizes me, that's a little different. She's worked on some fascinating topics like STEAM, which is putting art in STEM, maker spaces and emotion and education. So instead of just discussing one particular topic, since Nadia has continued to do so many different cool things, I've asked her to give us a sense of her own narrative to inspire us all to think outside of the box. So narrative, narrative, (laughs) this will be cut out. Nadia, welcome to Research Briefs.
2: Thanks so much, Ruth. Um, yeah, I've always I've always enjoyed our conversations and our chats. Um, so I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of this this cool podcast that you're doing, this cool thing that you're getting into. So thank you. Thank you.
1: So to start us off, can you tell us a bit about your pathway into engineering education research?
2: Sure. so um, so I started doing engineering education research as a PhD student so I was in a traditional mechanical engineering program and did all my degrees in mechanical engineering and I had done sort of on the side done some you know conference papers and gotten a little bit into engineering education and I um, did a dissertation or I was trying to figure out a dissertation topic and I had gotten to the point where I'd taken all the required courses you know for my PhD so I basically like, I just need to figure out the proposals We'll figure out what I'm doing and my advisor kept that little
1: piece right
2: yeah yeah exactly yeah just a minor detail <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then My advisor had wanted me to do something around like industrial parks. And I remember like it was an, I was in a lab for sustainable solutions. So I'd go and like read all this stuff. I had these big binders full of articles and trying to find a niche or something that made sense for me to do in there and something that I, you know, cared about and, you know, could go through, through with. And I went through a couple of different topics like that and just wasn't happy at all. Um, and finally, um, after some time, I think my advisor noticed that I wasn't happy and I thought about doing something with the engineering education and I was interested in complex systems. So something between those two. Um, and finally he, he sort of gave me the opportunity. He said, well, what would make you happy? And I'm like, this would make me happy. He's like, okay, do that. Um, so that was, so that was awesome to have that sort of opportunity, you know, in a traditional mechanical engineering program. Um, I remember when I decided that and started, you know, doing the research proposal and sort of started moving through the process, um, other faculty started asking me, sort of what I was doing and sort of what I was thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so there was concern about like what are you gonna do with with this engineering education? And this was sort of at the cusp of I think just I think this was just before the Virginia Tech and Purdue had started, <clears throat> excuse me, schools of engineering education. So it was it was sort of a, a new thing, you know, or something that they hadn't heard of before. And it's like, are you gonna go into administration? Like what are you gonna do with this? I'm like, I don't know. This is just what I'm excited about and what I'm passionate about and this is what I want to do and I'll see what happens later you know Um, So it was kind of, it was kind of cool to be able to do that. Um, And then, and then I ended up, which I thought was a little bit funny later on. I'm sure they were all sort of amazed by it, but people that had done more traditional mechanical engineering dissertations, you know, stuff with automotives and engines and whatever, they were having trouble getting placed into faculty positions. And these were good, like really good PhD students, some of my Mm -hmm. colleagues. Um, And then I did this weird, whatever, engineering education, whatever dissertation, and then I ended up getting a job right away, a faculty mm-hmm. position at, at the University of Georgia. So it sort of ended up it ended up working out in the end, but I definitely didn't know it would work out. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure what I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that sort of started the whole, like just doing things because it felt right and then hoping things would fall into place later on. Um,
1: right. right. So when you were thinking about complex systems, mm-hmm. What part of that began to intrigue you? So were you, you were thinking about how students learned complex systems or versus just trying to map out the system or?
2: Yeah, so um, when I was an undergraduate student, um, I actually transferred To an engineering school so did a pre-engineering program and when i got into it so i was at a liberal arts school first and when i got into the um engineering school that my junior and senior year by that senior year i was totally bored with my classes like it was very much these um you know making lots of assumptions and looking at these really simple systems you know in mechanical Mm -hmm. engineering and so at first it was it was difficult at first but then once you sort of figured out how to do the equations and and whatnot like it wasn't that difficult and i I felt like there was just something really missing from my education. So it was never thinking about, I don't know, the people in the system or how how you know things emerge in systems and complex yeah. systems. And so the complex systems really sort of made sense to me that this was something, you know, we, we need to know the details and we do need to be able to drill down and get into the, the math and equations and stuff. But we also I feel like engineers also need to have a broader understanding of sort of mm-hmm. what's going on. So being able to go up to the. You know, up into the air or whatever and seeing the bigger picture and what is, you know, yes, I'm designing a bridge or, so, or a dam or something, but how is that going to impact the local ecosystem? You know, how is that going to impact, you know, who can cross that bridge? Is there a, um, is there a, like a tight tunnel where only people that are in in their own cars, that own cars can get, get through it or, and then it limits people that are on buses. So they can't go to that area, you know, like trying to think more about, about um, systems in a more, you know, complex sort of way. Way. um i think for me that that interest in complex systems is what sort of it eventually led me into qualitative research um and then mm-hmm. and then eventually led me into like narrative research methods and some of some of these things so now now looking back i'm like oh it all makes sense <laughs> but at the time it didn't necessarily right.
1: um, yeah they always say that um you know what happens and emerges in their life in a forward direction. When you look back, you mm-hmm. see the pattern that isn't there. Yeah. Why did you say? So you went from complex systems and being able to look at um, problems in a, pro- uh, a broader way. Um, Do you remember a bit about the steps of what came next as you began investigating different areas? You did this job at UGA and kind of what happened after that?
2: Yeah. So the, I, I learned a lot in the process of the dissertation. So I I had one of my, one of my committee members, he was like, you need to make sure you have, you need to triangulate. And and to him, that meant that I needed to do basically a mixed methods. So like I looked at websites and those sort of as artifacts. Then I did a qualitative, you know, focus groups and interviews, So focus groups with students, interviews with faculty. And then I also did quantitative surveys that I sent out. So it was this like, basically almost, it could have almost been three different dissertations. Um, yeah. And and what I learned in that was the 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 survey part of it, like I. F- I got what I thought I was going to get, which mm-hmm. is I mean, it wasn't a well now that I know more about instrument development, it wasn't the best you know, example of, of a survey or an instrument. But for me, it was just like this This qualitative research is so much more rich. You know, there's so much more to that. Um, so that I think that was what sort of led me into into doing qualitative research. Um So, yeah, I interviewed at uh, the University of Georgia, and I think I was the fourth person interviewed. I think I was the, you know, like sometimes you'll bring someone in you're like, looks like there might be something to them, but probably not. But we'll just bring them in anyways. That's (laughs) right. um, And I think I'm pretty sure I was that person. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um so they so they brought me in and then they ended up loving me like they loved the sort of the complex systems I think aspect of things I don't know for whatever reason they just they just really loved me so I ended up getting you know I was really fortunate to end up getting that job um but then I was in the there's the agric- agricultural and biological engineering department within the college of agricultural and environmental sciences um mm-hmm. and so I'm the second female faculty, I think, I think at the time it was 50 or 55 faculty. So I was the second female. Um, there weren't at that time, there weren't many assistant professors. Um, and then I come in and I'm doing, you know, starting to build this research program where I'm doing qualitative research. And so I was definitely sort of an odd duck, you know, for a while. Um, right. Fortunately, a couple of years later, we hired uh, Joe Walter, And so then I had, you know, sort of a, a counterpart or someone else that was doing engineering education research. Church and you know, and it was really exciting to be able to to work with him and talk to him and you know explore ideas and stuff together. Um, but but prior to that, it was it was a bit difficult. Um, and and then I <laughs> I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but then I I had a we've got time we've got time. <laughs> so I had. I had done some research around sort of art and engineering, and I had a great collaborator in art education and then someone in creativity. And um, and then eventually we added Joe to the team also. But looking at this sort of this transdisciplinary studio where we had art and engineering students and we started, um, started the research project. We were planning to do a case study and it was sort of an intervention, you know, doing this thing. And we... Um, <laughs> It was it was super cool. And like a lot of really interesting stuff emerged out of it. We would do focus groups with students throughout the semester. Um, So really, really interesting dynamics that sort of emerged. Um, And as we started doing the research and started analyzing the data, I started to feel like something was just missing You know, like we had this rich data, but then, you know, when you start doing the codes and sort of categories, like we were losing the voice of of the participants and these really powerful stories that these, these students had were just sort of lost, you know, in the... And I guess I guess that's what sort of happens whenever you start looking across lots of data. Um, so that was when it was like, I feel like there's something else to this that we're we're sort of missing out on. So that's when we started looking at um, narratives as a possibility of a way of of keeping the voice of the students, you know, in the dissemination efforts. Um, so that was kind of cool. And then the other thing that we came to was the. Like the role of emotion in learning and in student learning. So we had always before, or I don't know, a lot of times in engineering, I think we like to think, you know, we're analytical and logical and think in this, you know, it's very cognitive sort of based. Um, but we started, started reading stuff about emotions or started seeing stuff that we couldn't quite make sense of, and then started reading about the role of emotion and learning and that they're not, they're not separate. It's not a right brain versus left brain thing, but they're actually intertwined. And for us to make decisions, you know, for example, we have to have, we have to have the emotional capacity also to make good decisions. Um, so then I started looking into emotions and this totally new, completely new, you know, big area. Um, and that was around when I was writing a career grant. Um, and I remember I was, I was super excited about it. And so I told my, one of my mentors at UGA and he was like, look, Nadia, like this is I think this is a really bad idea, like emotions, like, you know, like I'm the second female faculty member in this really sort of traditional land grant university, ag and biological engineering, you know, agricultural and environmental sciences. And then I'm a female and then I'm doing qualitative research research and then I'm gonna study emotions. He's like, just wait. You know, wait until after 10 years. Just you know, I think it'd be better not to have the word emotion on your C V. And so so I was a little devastated by it, you know, because this was sort of, you know, it's what I was excited about, what I was passionate about. I knew it was risky, the whole writing a career grant about it, because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something I had developed sort of throughout my career so far. It was this new area that I was interested in exploring. And after after thinking about his advice for a while, I just decided, you know what? I'm not going to worry about it. Like, I'm going to do what I'm going to tell the story that I want to tell, you know, and I'm going to do the things that that make sense to me at the time and hope that they work out for the best, you know, um. I don't know, like if I hadn't gotten tenure, you know, then then this isn't the right place for me. If it, if it's a place that doesn't value my work and my contributions, even if it's around emotions, then then maybe it's not a good good place for me. Right.
1: Um, so yeah,
2: so I ended up not I ended up not getting the career grant. Um, it reviewed really well though, so I just resubmitted it for it's what used to be RFE. I don't know what it was called at the time. Re maybe, but anyways, they um, it ended up getting funded. So shortly after that. And I think with the NSF funding, it sort of helped. Right. <laughs> you know, right. It's like, okay, well, someone thinks this is valuable. <laughs> we don't get it.
1: but uh. Money can screen no matter what the strange topic, right? Yeah,
2: that's right. And NSF money especially was, was very great in that, in that program.
1: <laughs> yes. So a little bit selfishly, I'd like you to, if you would say a little bit about the narrative methods because we haven't had a guest yet um who used it and i know people tend to point to your work as a place where it's been used in engineering education research mm-hmm. um, so if you could just kind of introduce it okay to the listeners a bit
2: yeah yeah so narrative research methods um there's not like, like most qualitative research methods, there's not sort of a formula that you can follow or a specific way to do it. Um, one of the things that I think is true for all of my research now is I always do narrative interviews for the most part. Um, Cause with, I don't know, I guess I'm always interested in things, you know, like identity development or the experiences of underrepresented students or, or whatever it is and the narrative sort of hearing people's story and, and the Things that they choose to include as part of their story can really help you get to some of that richness of their of of the data and of of what makes them sort of unique. Um, so with narrative interviews, I sort of start with a just a really general question, you know, something basically like. So so, if I was doing an interview with you, I'd be like, "So Ruth, so I'm really interested, you know, in your story, and I'd like you to to tell me your story. Feel free to take as much time as you like, but I'd like to know, you know, how you got to the point you're at now, where you're a full professor, you know, at Purdue. And this could go back from when you were a child or when you were an undergraduate. But you know, so trying to encourage people to sort of think back and sort of make connections across their their sort of background, um, and that's." Um, sort of the narrative part of the interview. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that'll take... 30 minutes, you know, 40 minutes. And that's awesome. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. people are a little bit more abbreviated or they're not used to taking long turns like that. So they'll right. sort of shorten it. Um, and then you enter into sort of more of a com- conversational phase. And what that looks like is so the, the interview protocol is super easy to write. But, but what, what that looks like is that, oh, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. You mentioned uh, getting, getting full professor. So can you tell me about that process or can you tell me more about that? And so then, you know, like keying into certain points of their of their story are things that you're interested in, and then just getting them to tell you more about those those specific windows, sort of in their in their story. <laughs> Um, so that's what a lot of the interviews look like. And then, um, for the analysis of them, it can, it can take a couple of different forms. Um, so some of the stuff I've done is sort of falls into the narrative analysis category where you basically construct narratives out of... Out of the data, um, so this could look like it could be that I take so say I did an interview with you. I could take your interview and and create and construct a narrative from that interview. Um, a lot of times, I like to try to use all your words. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to change, you know, add some connecting words and stuff so that right. it flows. Um, although you don't have to do that, it could be from my perspective or from the researcher. But I always like the voice of the participant. So right. Um, the other. The other way to do it would be to say I interviewed you and a bunch of, you know, I don't know, a a lot of other people. And then I could create sort of or construct sort of fictionalized narratives, um, but based on the the themes and the the stuff that I found in the stories and the patterns that I found in the stories. Uh Um, And that can be valuable in some cases where you really want to protect sort of the anonymity You know, we did an interview recently with a trans student at a private institution, you know, and it, it would be sort of easy to identify who that person was possibly. So then trying to think about other ways to, to sort of present those. Um, And then the other thing you can do is sort of an analysis of narratives. And so this Mm -hmm. could look more like what, what we're used to seeing, you know, in engineering education where we, we have these narratives, we collected, you know, we, we did these narrative interviews with however many people, and then we could start, you know, we could use some coding or, you know, some of like Johnny Saldana's, you know, like different codes and different levels of codes to try to start to see what are the patterns across the different interviews and the different stories. Mm -hmm. Um, So sort of different ways of approaching it. Um, Right. I don't know if that's enough of an overview, but there, the, I, the thing is, I think a lot of times people that are new to something are like, well, what is the answer? Like, what is the right way of doing it? And there's just, there's just not, you know, like you have to think about what, what's important to you, how you want to, you know, disseminate sort of the results. The thing that gets sort of sticky with these is the, is really the dissemination. Mm-hmm. So um, we did a project around faculty change and so we were, we we're interested in finding sort of this exemplar faculty, you know, like the, the ones that are um, that have changed from sort of passive learning strategies in their classroom to really active strategies. Um, so we we did that. We did these interviews with people from across the U.S., you know, really these superstar sort of faculty and, t- and educators. Um, and and then, you know, we did it with the plan of this is going to be a narrative research study. But. Even then, you start writing up. You know, like I think, <laughs> or one of the places we presented at was Reese, um, and they have a really limited page number that you can, you know. So then it's like, okay, well, how do I how do I include the stories of some of the participants right. in this really small sort of format? Um, then we transition then we moved that into a journal article, and you know, expanded them some, included. Uh, three stories in there from the participants, but it still was mostly in the researcher's voice, you know, with excerpts from the from the interviewee. Right. So it still felt it, it it just didn't feel quite right. Like, I don't I don't think it was valuable, but it didn't didn't quite get to what I wanted to get to. Right. Um, and we had part of our, with my research team with uh, Brooke Coley and Audrey Bacledge. We had created these are constructed these narratives, you know, as a step in the analysis. So these really right. rich narratives, I'm like, it's just all getting lost. Um, and one of the, the values I see in this work is that other people can read other people's stories or hear other people's stories and see that it's not that you're just born being really good at active learning in your classroom, you know, like these things, like they they encountered all kinds of barriers and difficulties and still sort of persevered. So it's really, these really inspirational stories, but also really rich and complex. It's not a simple, Oh, I wanted to do this and I tried it and it just worked well sort of stories. Right. Um, so I was like, well, what can we do? Like, how do we, how can we share this, like share these stories with, with people, you know, with, I don't know, engineering educators with new, new faculty or with older faculty that want to be inspired. Um, so we decided to write a book <laughs> mm-hmm. and do sort of a um <laughs> sort of where each each chapter is basically a story of each of, of the participants right um in their words so in their sort of spoken word which is maybe a little bit strange um so so that's so we're, i'm working on that now <laughs> let's do it in november i'm not sure what i'll have time to, to finish it but then and then each of the the participants because these are faculty like they'll be the authors or the authors on those chapters right um right. and so and that's another thing um i think alice had mentioned it in in your interview or your podcast with her but some people you know like you tell your story like you want your name to be associated with your story so right. so we ask people like would you like this to be you know a part of this and then they're involved you know we check in with them to make sure they're still mm-hmm. good with us with us sharing their stories um, but I think most faculty especially in this type of study you know they're they're happy to or they want to be identified <laughs> you know right because right. Um, it's their story yes. and it's their unique yes. story yes um, so it brings a lot of interesting sort of sort things along with it right the choices you have to make
1: now i hear you're also investigating a really cool method that you're yeah by <laughs> yeah so the the thing i'm
2: super excited about right now um we have this project it's around um maker spaces and we're interested in trying to understand how engaging in makerspaces impacts students identity development um, especially students from underrepresented groups um, the sort of reason for doing this was we were you know engineering education as a system or higher ed it's it's a difficult system to, to make sort of widespread changes to but' we're like these makerspaces are relatively new you know and they're really sort of spreading like wildfire they're you know we're getting them all over the place and then lots of universities and engineering students have access to them so it seemed like something that we could maybe have impact with sort of more more easily have impact with um, and it seems like a powerful space to to help people develop especially underrepresented students to develop their identi- identity and self efficacy. you know as an engineer um, so we we did this I don't know. It was sort of cool. We visited seven different institutions that had university affiliated makerspaces um, and, and ended up being, I think, 10 makerspaces. And we interviewed at each site. We interviewed at least eight students. It ended up being, I think, 67 students total. Um, and we'd really tried to target students from underrepresented groups. So. So in the end, I think we had like 80 percent that were from underrepresented groups um, and again, you know, it's a sort of a similar story, but that, you know, it's a big data set. There's a lot of data. Um, right. So we start, we're in the, now we're in the analysis and dissemination phases of it. Um, and we're, you know, we are doing more traditional like coding and looking across and looking for patterns, um, pulling out subsets of students. So we have a lot of, um, of black male students. One of them, we went to HBCU. So it's like this, this is a population we haven't done a lot of research around. So this seems like an opportunity to to sort of look at that. Um, and so we're doing we're doing different types of studies. Um, and I had attended a AERA conference. So the American Educational Research Association, I believe is the mm-hmm. acronym. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and um, we I had attended this conference and listened to this presentation, and it was about eye poems. And this woman read some of these eye poems, you know, during the during the presentation. And basically, um, eye poems they come out of this listening guide that um, Brown and Gilligan had developed a while ago. So, like from I think it was early '90s, um, and they were feminist scholars and really interested in in getting or understanding and focusing on the voices of the participants. Um, and so, you know, just sitting in that presentation, like this is amazing and so powerful. And um, basically it involves, you take sort of an excerpt, you know, from, from an interview transcript. And then you sort of underline all of the, the sentences that start with I. So anything with I, this is, and it started to change the way I interact with people. <laughs> I've started, I've noticed I start hearing, like you have I people and you people, like people that are really interested in talking about themselves. And then people that are interested in learning from others. Um, but you, you underline all the I sort of statements in it and then, you know, organize them temporarily. So pull them out. And then I, I ended up adding, adding some contextual stuff and there's some, you know, some he and some, some that don't necessarily start with I, but just to help so that it sort of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just, I just went to FIE, the frontiers in education conference and did a, it was a work in progress session. So we did, it was like 10 quick interviews, you know, or quick, sorry, quick presentations. So like five minutes each and it's 10 of them. And of course I'm the very last one. So at this point, people are like, you can just tell they're just done, you know, sort of glazed <laughs> over. Yeah. I'm like, how can I connect to the audience? I don't know. Um, but so I gave sort of a quick introduction and, you know, asked some questions about, you know, like, have you ever felt like the voices of your participants got lost, you know, in the in, in the data analysis phase of the research and in the dissemination efforts? Um, and so started asking some questions and people like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've definitely had that. And then I read this poem. <laughs> Um, and it was, it was amazing. Um, should I read it? Yeah. You think? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is a poem and then I'll talk about it afterwards, but I might just read it without saying much about, and this is part of that makerspace project. Um, so I was in there, I had a project, I was filing my project. I was doing some finishing on the wood. I'm filing. I know how to file. I had to, I had a class before. I was filing wrong. I did it and it was beautiful. I know how to file. I'm filing upstairs. Big file. Perfect strokes. Guy is hovering behind me. And it's just like, tisk 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 tisk. I'm like, I don't know what he's doing. Because I'm like, I'm filing. I'm just like, he's just like, no, no. I think he's like, doing something else. He like touches me. Um, excuse me. Excuse me. Um, you're doing that wrong. I'm sorry. I was like, "Oh no. It's like He he starts doing it. He's like mangling the side of my piece. I was like, "Oh no, this. I'm like, I think I got this." He's like, "Okay." I don't know. I was just like, so now I'm like, this piece is mangled, I have to fix it. So so this was a um the uh taken from a transcript with a black female at a private institution. Um and when I read it at the at the frontiers of education conference, like people were glazed over when I walked up there and then people start leaning forward. And you actually, I saw some like tears in people's eyes. Um, and, then, and then I finished and then we had sort of a poster session afterwards. So people could come and talk to you or you know whichever ones they were interested sure. in. Um, I had this man come up to me and he said, that's me. Like I, I did that. He said, I think I did that last week with a student. I had no idea how that was perceived by the student. You know, like he, he was just struck. He's like, I didn't, you know, he just never, never considered that, that he could be having this sort of impact on, on his students. Um, so to me, I was like, this is so powerful that right. this man that's engaging in maker spaces, this may change his behavior or at least get him thinking about and reflecting on his behavior um, right. of how, how these students are, you know, are interacting with him. And then, you know, this student, like there was some really, Really cool stuff with this makerspace and the management, but then you have you know other students in the spaces and sort of where where people feel marginalized, um, right. you know, and you sense that empowerment. Like I know how to file, like I know right. how to do this. It was beautiful, you know, whatever. And then you have yeah. this person that just comes in and starts sort of taking away from that, or you know, right. um, so so that's the thing I'm super excited about right now. And and I think the
1: power of the iPhone you read is that you can construct that image in your mind a mm-hmm. dumb woman who knows how to file fabulously and she made this beautiful thing and here's some guy saying oh no I know how to do it better and then mangling it yeah and um, that is so much more powerful than making some academic statement about microaggressions or feeling marginalized you know that, yeah that tells you more about what is the experience of feeling marginalized.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, I don't know. Cause you tell it was, you, you could tell it was a female from hearing it. You, you said it. Oh, again. did I say, I said, oh yeah, I said it then, but I was wondering if when I, when I was reading it if you could tell, but
1: yeah, yeah. no. But as you yeah. said at the end. Yeah. And I think yeah. that, um, you know, that I, I project something yeah. about the situation Yeah, when you said that, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. And I, I guess part of I'm the excitement is sort of maybe eliciting that emotion or for, so people can really start to resonate with the participants and sort of yeah. feel like you're maybe standing alongside them instead of sort of staring at them or studying yes. them. So there's, yes. it seems to maybe like, we're still, as researchers, we're still in a position of power with our research participants, you know, like we're, we're choosing, I'd even in this, like I, I had all these student narratives to look at, you know, I chose this one and then I chose this one excerpt. So there was still a lot of, <laughs> Intentionality from from me as a researcher and me choosing, you know, which stories to to bring to the forefront. Um, but at least then you still bring their voice, you know, back into it. Um, and then also these are shorter, so it so it it can allow us to sort of include or get the the feel of the voice of of multiple people, sort of in in a traditional journal article or in a conference proceeding. Um, Thank you. So that's that's kind of exciting.
1: Well, that is, I I can see why you're excited about that. That's really powerful in a way to be able to help people really create that emotion. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I don't know if I think about people who are listening. So maybe, you know, if you, if you're doing analysis and something doesn't feel quite right, you know, it's okay to pivot. And, and think, you know, even though I didn't, we didn't start this project going, oh, we're going to do this poem analysis, or we're going to follow, you know, even maybe even follow the listening guide. Um, But sometimes stuff, you know, stuff comes up and, you know, something just wasn't quite right. And, and there's nothing wrong with continuing to do the, the other stuff that you plan to do, but it's also okay to pivot and learn about other, you know, other research methods or try to find something that better aligns with. With what you're trying to to do, you know, and sort of how you how you can disseminate these these types of things, right? Um, and be okay, sort of with with experimenting and playing and trying something different. Um,
1: so, I, I would like to wrap up with a a final question because I'm I'm hoping that the podcast do inspire people to try new things. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I think your story demonstrated several times today was that you'd be in a situation and something just didn't feel right. You, you were missing something mm-hmm. and that you then explored and either by serendipity or by reading you encountered something that might work, mm-hmm. but it was really risky. and you you know people explicitly your mentor said don't do this (laughs) yeah (laughs) can you talk a bit about what gave you the courage to do it anyway
2: yeah it's an interesting question i don't know i don't know where it sort of that came from um yeah, I don't know if it was, you know, a mom who was sort of a feminist, you know, and would sort of push us to to do good things and you know and be authentic to yourself. Um, I'm sure that was part of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. it It seems to be I think maybe because of some of those experiences that I started to learn that that it was okay to, to do what, what felt right to me mm-hmm. and to take that risk that, that maybe, you know, and, and I guess partially it may be cause I'm from, you know, I have some privileges, you know, to where it did, it did sort of ended up, you know, ended up working out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but this sort of starting to be comfortable with, and even if, even if say I hadn't gotten tenure at UGA, You know, because I had had emotion quite a few times in my CV, Um, even had I not gotten tenure, that would have been okay. you know, Mm -hmm. and I, I don't think I would have looked back and had major regrets that, oh, I really shouldn't have done. You know, I should have listened to my mentor. I shouldn't have I shouldn't have done these, you know, done these things or done whatever, because it was and it, it really aligned with who I am and it was authentically me. Um, so I think it would have, it would have been okay. I might've had a, a very different life, you know, after that, after that point, um, I think, I don't know. I think it's good to like, in that, in that particular situation, I was like, well, what, what will happen? So like, what is the worst case scenario? You know, like, am I going to starve? Am I going to go to prison? You know, like things will, things will be okay. You know? Right. Right. Um, and I sort of had come up with a plan B, you know, with the whole tenure thing. Um, cause there, it was a little rocky along the road, sort of at the college level vote. But, um, I came up with this plan B and it was to become a professional skydiver. And I'm like... <laughs>
1: Something
2: you do, yeah. (laughs) Which was (laughs) it was a possibility for sure. I don't remember how many jumps I had, but probably fifteen hundred or eighteen hundred jumps, and was competing at a national level. Like it could have been something we could have done. (laughs) We probably would have transitioned from living in a house to living in a trailer. But what it would have it would have been a, a meaningful life. um But just being sort of okay with with taking. Like I think if you take the risk, then the the reward or the potential for reward is huge. Um, Whereas if you don't take the risk, I don't know, you might just sort of be in sort of a middle ground. Like I don't, it'll be okay, but to me, it won't be like the most meaningful or the most exciting or most, I don't know, the, you know, the thing that really resonates with you, that gets you up in the morning and gets you excited about what you're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's, I think that's important, or at least for me, it's important. Um, And and now that... (laughs) And now for sure, now that I do have tenure, you know, it's, it's easier to maybe to not be as worried about those things. It's one of those luxuries that tenure, tenure grants you, um, where you don't have all those, have all those pressures and stuff. Yes. Um, but, but I'm on the other hand, if, if you end up not getting tenure at your institution, I think it just, it, it isn't necessarily a reflection on you as not being a good scholar or as not being a good faculty member. I think I think it really sort of reflects that the alignment just isn't there, you know, and the, the goals of the institution aren't aligned with your goals. Um, and so that's probably a good thing to figure out, you know, and maybe that's not somewhere where it, it may not be the best place for you to to be empowered and to really blossom and to do, you know, do exciting and and whatever things that push the boundaries.
1: So, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think people have a sense of why it's always so (laughs) exciting to talk with you. (laughs) I have this picture of you as this person that kind of looks for the sun, like a sunflower will turn towards the sun. I think Mm -hmm. Nadia turns towards the sun and perhaps, uh, you know, being at an institution with the sun devils, perhaps. (laughs) For (laughs) you. It's a good fit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's true. It's true. And they, like
2: ASU, we have this open access sort of mission, which is really awesome. Um, so it's not just about like letting in the upper crust or the best students, but letting in a lot of students and and more our value comes from what we produce or, you know, what they do whenever they leave us or sort of what they've right. learned. Um, and then they also really like change at ASU. And so for me, that just resonates with who I am. Um, right. So so yeah, it is a good, a good place for me to follow my son i like that metaphor (laughs) Yes.
1: yes yeah do you have any last things you'd like to say to the listeners um i don't know
2: i guess the maybe the other thing that maybe didn't explicitly come out was trying to find sort of other inspiring and empowering people to, to be around, mm-hmm. um, that can make a big difference. You know, if you're just working alone in your office, but sometimes we're almost encouraged to do. Um, but if you can find people, you know, like when Joe came to, to UGA, like that was amazing. Um, recently I had a, or like I guess a year ago, I had a faculty member or someone that was starting as a faculty member in December contacted me and he's like, I'm interested in doing this, this reef, you know, that, or the sort of early engineering education thing. And I've, Wanted to find a mentor. And so we ended up working together. Um, his name's Terrain. And he's a joint appointment between arts, media, and engineering, and electrical and computer engineering. And then he has an undergraduate degree in philosophy. <laughs> But it's so cool. So we're, we're working together, trying to, we got the grant, which is exciting, but yes. um, trying to understand sort of the epistemology of of these students that are in this transdisciplinary art, media, and engineering program. And then also looking at the more traditional students um, and then and trying to figure out how to understand epistemology. It's, you can't just ask students, so tell me about your epistemology, right. you know? Um, so that's led us down this path to where now we're learning discourse analysis together which is, it's just super cool. You know, like I really look forward to doing the work and then going to those meetings. Um, so trying to find people, you know, like that that can help sort of inspire you and you can start learning together. And, um, I think that's, I think that's really, really important to to take the time to try to find those, those collaborators.
1: Um, I agree. (laughs) So I feel that people have learned from you, speaking about learning together, and uh, I certainly will continue to keep an eye on the cool new things you're doing and find ways to keep interacting with you. Yep. And thank you so much for being a guest on Research Briefs. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: As I mentioned earlier, this episode was originally broadcast in February 2019. Here are some updates from Nadia. In addition to being an Associate Professor of Engineering within the Polytechnic School of the Ira A. Fulton Schools of Engineering at Arizona State University, Dr. Nadia Kellam is a faculty in the Engineering Education Systems and Design PhD program. She was a deputy editor of the Journal of Engineering Education and is now co-chair of the newly formed American Society of Engineering Education's Committee on Scholarly Publications. Given Nadia's continuing interest in emotion, it's not surprising that she is launching the Center for Transformative Research on Emotions in Engineering and Sustainability Education. This is a global collaboration to develop, launch, and evaluate a research platform for international and interdisciplinary collaborations for a better future. The Engineering Education Research Briefs podcast is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. Original theme music is composed and performed by Patrick Vogt.